Good evening, and you are listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, Mendocino County's Public and Community Radio. And on this evening's Ecology Hour, I will be your host, Hannah Bird. We've got a great show for a damp evening today. You'll be transported to Tanzania, where we'll be following cattle and keeping an eye out for lions. We'll also be considering why diversity in the research community is so very vital. How do many voices at the table help to ask more applicable questions and find better solutions? That's all with the fantastic Dr. Jacqueline Beck, who recently completed her PhD from Michigan State University and who has just moved to Mendocino County to become the Academic Program Manager at the UC Hopland Research and Extension Centre. I started by asking Dr. Beck just what brought her to California and what hopes she has for her new position. Yeah, sure. Um, so as you just mentioned, I am the new Academic Programs Management Officer here at Hopland Research and Extension Center. Um, and I'll also be serving the Sierra Foothills Research and Extension Center. Um, so in this position, I will be helping to coordinate and oversee these academic programs. So that means um, scientific research, as well as education programs and community outreach. And this is actually a brand new position here for the Division of Ag and Natural Resources, which makes it really exciting for me. Um, so the main purpose of this job will really be to sort of grow those research programs and education programs and integrate them between the two RECs. So here in California, we have nine research and extension centers across the state, and they all sort of function independently. And so it will be my job to search for synergies between these two sites, search for ways that we can grow the capacity for researchers to use and take advantage of the exciting and unique resources at both of these RECs, and to create a sort of shared vision for what the future of these education and research programs can really look like when we bring them together. So for me personally, um, I guess I could say that this position is what brought me to California. But so I feel like all of my professional experiences have really led up to and kind of pushed me towards this position with UCANR. My educational background is in wildlife science. I started my career at the Georgia Department of Natural Resources, primarily studying bat ecology and management. And over the years, I took on more responsibility and I started to really lead and facilitate that research and teach technicians and assistants and volunteers about the work that we were doing uh, and interacting with the public. And I knew that I wanted to grow in those aspects of my job, um, but I also had this dream that I needed to pursue, which was um, helping to address human wildlife conflict in East Africa. And I was expanding my skills um, in carnivore research at the same time. And so after several years, I was prepared and I was able to get funding for a PhD program at Michigan State and was able to pursue that research. So specifically, I worked on human lion conflict in Northern Tanzania, uh, particularly over the depredation of livestock. So that research looked at both lion and cattle behavior uh, with the aim of creating improved herding practices 
to help avoid unwanted interactions between these species while they're out on the rangelands. So during that time, I really started to get a full picture of how complicated these conservation and natural resource issues really are mm -hmm. and how we need to be able to look at them from multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. So with human-lion conflict in particular, you can't just solve it by, say, putting up a fence mm -hmm. um, because that might facilitate other carnivores. For example, leopards are very good at climbing fences. So we need studies that incorporate the ecology of multiple species. Mm -hmm. And we can't just ask herders to work in a limited or restricted space because it cuts them off from historic lands and traditional practices. Mm -hmm. So we need studies that incorporate the social dimensions of these issues, the historic mm -hmm. context of these issues. Mm -hmm. And that's what really got me excited about growing my research in new directions, mm -hmm. looking at how we conduct conservation work, um, how we can create science that's more interdisciplinary. And that means that when scientists work with other experts across disciplines or across scientific fields. Mm -hmm. So in that way, we can address these issues from the bigger picture, mm -hmm. look at more perspectives, and ideally find solutions that actually work out on the landscape. So that uh, is what really brought me here because I feel like this position is going to give me that opportunity. That's what UCANR really does. So we work with applied scientists trying to find solutions for Californians, how to solve problems, how to live better lives, and that's what I hope to achieve in this position. Fantastic. Well, wow, you've given me a lot to be wanting to ask you questions about from that. Um, and if you don't mind, I think if we step back, well, here's one thing that when we did the promotion for this show, I was fascinated by this work you've done about um, the importance of diversity in scientists asking questions. And you, we still have this, and I think even you know, kids, my kids have this idea that a scientist is somebody who's kind of an older guy with a big white beard and in a laboratory. And what you are putting out there is not just that that is not the case, that is not who you are, <laughs> but also that it is critical in asking the questions that we have to bring in a great diversity of scientific minds from lots of different arenas. So just with that underlying the conversation that's, that we're going to have today, um, I hope it's okay if we, we begin by just putting a lens on some of the projects that you've done. So I'm fascinated by the work you've done on bats. Um, I, and that sounds like that was kind of the beginning of your career. So I'm also interested in what drew you to bats? Was that, was, you know, how did that, what was, the, what was the journey for you to get into that area? Yeah, yeah, it was, all of this is a long journey. You know, every step in your life points you in a slightly different direction and you follow that path. So for me, it was always about following the things that I felt passionate about. Mm -hmm. I originally thought that I would want to work uh, with captive wildlife. I interned at the Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha. I interned at a place called the Wildcat Sanctuary in Minnesota uh, and got some experience working with those exotic animals hands-on. Mm -hmm. And that really you know, helped me learn that that wasn't what I wanted to do. So sometimes our life experiences show us the paths that we don't want to take. Mm -hmm. But I was very inspired by some of those animals that I worked with, the bats at Henry Dorley in particular. Um, well, never forget <laughs> my first day in a fruit bat enclosure. 
And it's, it's a whole story, but it's actually quite funny that I learned about the personality of these animals. I actually had one of these bats climb down a branch and tug on my ponytail while I was in there. And um, they just had, a, you know, they were just so charismatic and kind of <laughs> cheeky and fun. And that, I, I got inspired because people don't see bats in that way. So I knew that I wanted to learn more about them and work more with them out in the field, um, work towards their conservation and management because they're so misunderstood and people don't see them as something positive uh, or animals that they want to interact with. Uh, so I started pointing myself in that direction. I was able to get that job with Georgia Department of Natural Resources, first just as a summer field technician, um, netting for bats, uh, rare species along the coast of Georgia, it's mm -hmm. called the Northern Yellow Bat, mm -hmm. and we were netting for that bat, trying to catch it and trying to put transmitters on it so that we could follow it to its roost site, so where it spends the nights. And that bat is really cool because it actually roosts in Spanish moss that hangs from the trees. And yeah, they're, they're so cool. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, that was really exciting for me. And that was part of what got me into working with the public because I would invite um, school groups or teachers or, you know, anybody who might be using the public spaces that we worked on to come and observe my net sites. Mm -hmm. It was always my favorite thing to show people bats in hand because they're always so excited uh, mm -hmm. by what they see. They're like, oh my gosh, they're not scary. They're cute. They look like little dogs or little bears. Like, I really like it. It's so cute. Um, and so I love changing people's minds about that and also changing people's minds about, like you said, what a scientist looks like. Like when they, when people would encounter me in the field, they might be shocked. Like, aren't, aren't you scared as a girl to be out here at night? You know, like, don't you need a man around or something like that? Um, and just kind of showing people that I can, I can do that as well, that women can be biologists in the field, that young people have skills. Uh, and so just kind of surprising people in a lot of ways, that was really fun. So that, thank you for explaining that. You definitely got me, you got me, I, I was already interested in bats, but I'm feeling more and more hooked as you speak. And so I, I find it really interesting as well, the way you've you've done this work with bats. It seems like you have a, a connection with these species and you've said it those misunderstood species, right? And the conflict, because even with bats, right? There's, there's this kind of great concern about, oh, they're gonna find your hair or it's gonna be dangerous to have them around. So you were working with the public and changing perceptions there. And then you talked also about this area of work, which um, just sounds absolutely fascinating working in Tanzania. So if you wouldn't mind giving us also just a, a, an overview of that work, which I know is, yeah, I'm going to have many questions on. Yeah, it's, it's big. So that particular work um, was five years of my life across my PhD journey. And it definitely evolved over time from what I expected. You can, you know, ask anybody who's, who's go, like starting a large research project. So East Africa, and in particular northern Tanzania, is really a hot spot for what we call human carnivore conflict, especially with, with lions and other big cats like leopards um, and hyenas as well. So we have a, a lot of livestock production in this region, mm -hmm. and the, the herders 
practice what's called pastoralism. It's a bit modified now, but traditionally they move their livestock across the rangelands in response to seasonal rain patterns. So they're always searching for green grass, sources of water for their animals. And traditionally that is a very sustainable practice. It allows the grasslands to regenerate in times when the herds are elsewhere, and it gives the herders um, space to um, find places that are safe from carnivores, to let the, let the animals have um, space where they roam, They're like so that the encounter levels were traditionally much lower than they are today. Mm-hmm. When we enclose our livestock in small areas that are the same all the time, wild species, you know, they get a, they get a feel for that. Yeah. Um, and so they might come and, you know, attack those livestock in um, those enclosed spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you keep moving, right. if you keep it's moving, more challenging. it's more challenging for them to find you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're out on the landscape as well, looking for um, wild prey species. They're looking for sources of water. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's less chance that you'll have these negative um, mm-hmm. encounters. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of research about these negative encounters at the homestead. Mm-hmm. They um, do keep their livestock in enclosures called bomas at nighttime generally, which are sort of corrals that are made out of thorn bushes and things like that and unfortunately sometimes we have interactions with carnivore species that get into those bomas so lepers can climb over hyenas can dig under but lions are really the only species out on these rangelands that do tend to attack cattle while they're grazing out in the daytime And there's not much information known about those interactions because it's really difficult to collect data in the field um, when the cows are moving across the landscape, when the lions, we don't know exactly where they are. Um, I've had people ask me, like, well, aren't aren't all the lions collared? Can't you just (laughs) see where they are and avoid them? And that's not the case. You know, there are many wild animals out there, and we don't know where they are, where they're going to move to. Uh, So that was part of my work. Mm. I decided... That I would just follow the cows around, and everyone told me that I was crazy, but <laughs> that's, that's what I love doing is, um, like I said, taking a different perspective, um, doing things a little bit differently to see another side of the problem. So I'm really interested because what you're talking about as well is that these animals are accompanied by... Uh, what, what's the appropriate term for the, the owner? A herder? Yeah, so the herder. And this is a practice which has gone on for many, many years. And so that herder has been grappling with this issue for generations, potentially, right? It's fascinating. It's such a cultural tradition. So generally, it's actually young boys that are out in the field with these cows, and it's passed down to them from their fathers. Every boy will have a certain number of cattle that he will look after. Um, And so it's, it's a fun for me because I get to be out there and... You know, the boys, they're, they're elementary school age all the way up to teenagers, and they're fun, you know, like they're jumping over bushes, and they're running, and they want to talk to me and test test out my Swahili. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, they 
like they they get it, but it's always the the dad. So when I go and first start asking for permission to follow herds um, and interact with the communities in the specific homesteads, um, the fathers are always very very aware of this issue with the lions, and they're always asking me about, am I going to help them? Am I gonna you know solve this problem? And that's hard because. It can't, it's not just me, you know, my one study is not going to solve the problem, but hopefully with their input, with um, more knowledge as we combine these different um, sources of information. So what we know about lion ecology, what I will find out about the herding practices, what they will share with us about their traditional ways of life, all of that put together will hopefully be able to find some solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern. Um, but the, the herders, they, I mean, they, they're doing their best. For yeah. Sure. And they must bring a huge amount of knowledge themselves, right? Of how they do try to minimize mm-hmm. this risk. Um, but I guess things are also changing all the time. Exactly. And that's why the problem is bigger now than ever before, mm-hmm. because the, the people are being more restricted, um, from their cultural practices. The, the, there are fights over land rights and water rights all around. Um, they, you know, the population is expanding, cities are expanding, and that, that is a big issue for the herding practices because mm-hmm. they can't just travel when you know, Dar es Salaam is in the way or mm-hmm. um, a big city mm-hmm. has cut off where they used to move their cattle. So, so there's pressures on, on everybody, on the wildlife, on the people. Yes, yeah. yes, okay. exactly. So, so here you are, you've decided, I am now going to put myself in this position. You've already talked a little bit during this conversation about the fact you are not afraid to put yourself in positions that other people might say, but you can't possibly do that. You're a young woman. Oh, so yes. I'm imagining that oh, you may yes. be well, confronted with a little of that. Do you mind me asking a bit no, about how that not. process went? Right. And, and it's, it's absolutely fair um, <laughs> that people would have a different expectation of what they would find as a scientist in the field. Um, in Tanzania, it's especially interesting because they have a very different gendered culture than we are used to. And uh, sometimes it's really difficult for the men to speak with me about the, their work um, mm-hmm. because I am a woman. Mm-hmm. And so I actually had to start telling people that I was married and that my husband allowed me to be there. Uh-huh. And then that was that allowed them to feel safe to talk to me because yeah, as an outsider, as an unmarried woman, there's this cultural expectation that maybe you know we shouldn't yeah. be yeah. Um, communicating about these things. Yeah. Uh, dare I ask whether do you think whether there are some occasions where actually they may talk once they've got over that barrier of feeling like would this even be appropriate for me to be talking to this right. researcher? But was there actually some occasions when maybe they would be willing to talk with you more freely because you were not a man. Yeah, it's possible. It's definitely possible. It was always interesting. Um, it was always different based on um, how much English the individual spoke. Um, I had a great team with me in the field that um, was able to translate where we couldn't, you know, one-on-one communicate. Um, but things are always lost in translation. Um, <laughs> anybody who <laughs> works um, in foreign countries will know, like, 
you just you, you hear people chuckle or they like smile and be like, oh, I think that they might be <laughs> laughing at me a little bit, but no one will tell you that. <laughs> um, but yeah, just spending time with people, communicating to the best of your ability um, and listening, whether that is listening to your translator like, but looking them in the eyes and knowing that what they have to say is relevant, mm-hmm. showing them that respect goes so far. Uh, and so, yeah, I was able to navigate that that difficult mm-hmm. social space between men and women. Yeah, no, that's great. So, again, I, I, I just find this area of your work absolutely fascinating. So, can you explain to me what what was a standard day like? You know, you've got you've got through the kind of beginning of this process, which sounds like there would be a lot of learning, right, to get this set up. But once you've got things rolling, what was your what was day to day existence like? Yeah. So, the the point of this study was to essentially look at how cattle behaved in areas where they were at high risk of lion attack and areas where they were at low risk of lion attack. So we do have some understanding a little bit of um, the migratory patterns of some wild prey. So where lions might be traveling, especially at specific times of the year in the dry season, they're going to be really concentrated around sources of water in the wet season. They'll, you know, range more broadly. And we have lots of historic data. So my collaborators with the Terengiri Lion Project have been collecting information about livestock depredations, meaning attacks or kills, um, for all types of carnivores since the, uh, the 1980s. So we've got this rich historic data set about where and how many attacks there were. And so we can use that to determine if there are areas that are very risky for animals to be in or not. Mm -hmm. And so I traveled to separate villages in both of those um, categories and would essentially arrive before dawn, help the herders prepare, and then set off with them all day. So essentially following the herds, I would keep my distance from the cows to not influence their behaviors, but um, I would follow an individual cow all day long. (laughs) Very fun, yes. (laughs) It's exactly what you could imagine, following a cow around through the brush, across the savanna, into the woods, across the dry riverbeds, all day until sunset and this is what those herders these young boys do every single day Um, and yeah so i would follow a cow and every 10 minutes i would write down where it was how long it was vigilant meaning how long it was not grazing how long it was scanning its environment for dangers so prey animals have to balance these these behaviors they need to be eating to keep their energy up and to survive but if they're eating they can't see what's around them they're not um, aware of their herd they're not um, seeing if um, something is approaching they're not sniffing the air right so um, if an animal is vigilant uh, it takes away that time that they could otherwise be feeding So I measure how long they are vigilant, how many times they become vigilant, so how many times they stop doing what they otherwise would be doing because they might potentially be afraid. Um, And a few other things about the environment, Um, the height of the vegetation, types of vegetation, uh, and... So, so you might be looking at a landscape and the area that they're in and thinking, okay, well, this is a riskier area. There's more places for a carnivore to be or a predator to be mm-hmm. hiding here. Yeah. Um, 
So, and then you might or might not see that mirrored in the behavior of correct. So we will also, yep. So I'll also measure the distance at the end of that 10 minute increment from where my focal individual is from like vegetation, tall vegetation. Lions are more successful at attacks if they're within 20 meters of their prey. So that's an important um, variable that we considered. And yeah, so I would be out there with my assistant and the herder and sometimes nobody else (laughs) besides cows all day. Yeah, primarily you're following cattle. Yes. and I, I love the idea that these herders are just like, wow, this lady's come along for the day. That's great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, she's really interested in what I'm doing. It's fab. Um, but I'm also, so how frequently did you find that you were actually near the lions as well? Or actually, I mean, did you have occasions when you were seeing a lion that was perhaps in the process of hoping to predate on these cattle? Yeah, so I was fortunate personally being on foot to not see lions out on the rangelands. There were two occurrences of depredations on some of the herds that I was following, um, but mostly during night. So we were finding that um, if a cow got lost on the rangeland or um, was, you know, kind of escaped his boma at night or something is, is when we were seeing more depredations when I happened to be there. Um, but the lions are definitely out there. And I did encounter some, some other <laughs> risky scenarios. Uh, so we're actually more likely to encounter other large animals out on the landscape, including giraffes and elephants. And sometimes you just don't, it's wild how large they are. You think you would always be aware of when they are around you, but that's not the case. Sometimes we're in very, very dense vegetation. Um, there are hills on this landscape and different, you know, geographic structures where you're just you're you're in the woods or whatever and you turn into a riverbed and all of a sudden there is a herd of elephants there mm-hmm. and being on foot is extremely dangerous um so <laughs> you know i it's always interesting to talk about these things because those herders are out there every day and for me to be like oh this is so so exciting or scary or you know it's it's when just their lives. It's their lives. It's their mm-hmm. day-to-day experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just also just living it. Um, mm-hmm. It was lucky for me that we didn't encounter any lions. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. They say that the lions have actually learned to recognize the um, the clothing that some of these cultural groups wear, in particular the Maasai people. They wear a lot of like red, bright red cloth, um, and they're generally very tall. They carry like, tall sticks with them, um, and they say that these lions have learned to avoid red, the hmm. sight of red on the landscape, which would not surprise me at all. Because yeah. um, this, again, this is an incredibly long history of this coexistence right right right. and so yeah so it wasn't the lions themselves that I was looking at because I wasn't studying direct interactions between these animals but rather the possibility of being attacked by them Mm -hmm. the the risk is what I was studying Mm -hmm. and so if the the idea there's this other underlying idea of why my study was so interesting Mm -hmm. is because there's sort of this theory that we have 
bred out what we call these anti-predator behaviors from mm -hmm. cattle and other livestock. Essentially, because we protect them and because we are breeding just the biggest ones or the ones that produce the most, we are not selecting for the ones that uh, are the best at avoiding predators, for example. Um, and maybe we are creating animals that are too dumb to be out there safely. And so, you know, I really started to question this because if these animals have been in this landscape for thousands of years, they are not born, you know, in a barn. They are not grazed in a pasture. They exist out there on the rangelands every day in the same spaces where these wild predators live. So if we expect if we think that cows are still capable of anti-predator behaviors, we can expect to see that here in this system in northern Tanzania. So I was looking for that, those sort of behaviors. Like I said, the vigilance um, also includes things like grouping up. Um, a cow might not want to be very close in a group because there's micro-competition for grass, there is disease transmission and things like that when you're in a very close group, but also being in a close group makes you a little more safe. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I was collecting information about all these little small things that the cows were doing and comparing them between sites. Mm -hmm are they acting in different ways mm -hmm. essentially yes. so not are they reacting to yes. the presence of a lion but do they generally mm -hmm. act differently because mm -hmm. of this underlying mm -hmm. risk mm -hmm. just a reminder that you are listening to the ecology hour on kzyx the time is 7:30 p.m and we're in conversation with dr jacqueline beck as she describes her research into how cattle behavior in Tanzania is influenced by the risks of the landscape and potential predators. So, so in some ways you're thinking, I'm thinking about like doc documentaries I've seen where you're looking at large um, wild populations of herbivores, right? And their kind of behaviors if um, they're perhaps in a riskier area. And you're trying to see if the cattle are actually still showing those similar behaviors or have we bred them so far away from that now that they don't have that kind of um, instinct as much that is exactly it yes fascinating stuff and I, I, I'm excited to bring this to think about how this corresponds to what we see in California in some cases too um, but I'm really interested in what what did you come with, up with some answers at yeah the end? what did you think yeah what, what did you think yes and it's actually not what you would necessarily expect so the the biggest or most exciting result of my research was actually that this the cattle in the low risk locations, low-risk village rangelands, were actually more vigilant than the cattle at the high-risk village rangelands. And yes. this has to do, my, my theory about why I you know, found this result it is related to the, the bigger picture, right? So we have to look at um, the environmental factors as well. And I believe that this is because all of the data that I collected was during the dry season. And as I mentioned, during the dry season, carnivores are really concentrated um, around those sources of water, which currently are really in protected areas um, because we've, you know, we've, we've built protected areas mm -hmm. in spaces that make sense for conservation. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to go on a safari, it's a good time to go during the dry season because all your animals are going to be there around um, lakes or rivers and mm -hmm. you'll be more likely to see them. Mm -hmm. 
And that also means it's good for herders because they're less likely to be roaming around looking for other prey items because those wild prey items are also in the protected areas right now. Mm -hmm. So for me, when I was out there collecting the you know months of data, all these months were in very dry times. So as I was describing the prey species needing to forage to gain energy. These animals, the cattle and wild prey, they're long-lived species. They have to create strategies for how they manage their energy, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. And where a small mammal like a mouse or a rabbit will have to feed constantly in order to survive, yes. cattle, um, it's not the same case, right? They'll be able to take in forage at a specific time of year in order to survive later times of the year when they are under more risk. Mm -hmm. So essentially what I think that we were seeing there is that these cattle in the low risk areas, they are always more vigilant. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas cattle in the high risk locations, this was the low risk time for them. Mm -hmm. So essentially, they were foraging as much as possible to make up for the time in the high risk times of the year when they will have to be extremely vigilant. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a balancing mm-hmm. act. Mm-hmm. Um, they appear like we might think that that it appears like they are um, less aware of the danger, but that's only because they have to be they have to spend more time being aware later. So they have to take in as much energy as possible during this low risk time because otherwise they might not be able to make it through the year. When it's the high risk right. time because they just won't have that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a constant balancing act for them between yes. um, the luxury almost of being vigilant because you have to be getting the forage you have to be eating right but um you you also can't starve and you also don't want to get eaten so there's this this kind of constant balancing and then with all these it's incredible how complex this picture seems to be and the complexity of the decision making and apologies if i'm anthropomorphizing too much here but the, the cattle seem to be making some very complex calculations here yeah absolutely Um, absolutely um you know, the, the herders can, will only do so much, right? They bring them to areas with forage. They lead them to water. But it's that same thing of, like, you can't make a horse drink or whatever. Like, the animals are making decisions constantly out on that landscape, even within what we would call, like, a vegetation clump or cluster, right? Mm-hmm. They're choosing which... Um, species of grass to eat they're choosing which tree to forage off of things like that Um, how like I was explaining how close to get to their neighbors or Mm -hmm. how how far to range does that look more delicious over there is it safe for me to to move away from my group so they are making decisions constantly and that is what's exciting to me as a like a behavioral ecologist I, I look at those like little small particular aspects of this big complicated um, scenario Mm -hmm. um, and what we can learn about that whole scenario by looking at these really detailed unique things that are happening within it. So often what I feel like I hear from a study 
is that now we have this knowledge, this opens up more questions. Do you know are there more studies that are going to go on that kind of look at this same or, or develop where, where you got to with this through your PhD? I hope so. Mm-hmm. I definitely hope so. Like I mentioned, there are not that many studies about cattle movement on the rangelands, mm-hmm. but technology is getting, uh, if not, technology is increasing right now, so we are having more ways of following multiple animals. Mm -hmm. So my study was really uh, unique because I was able to get those really fine scale details about essentially every minute of what that animal was doing, um, which is hard hard to get, which is why it's really the first kind of study that does things like that. But we've got things called accelerometers, um, which are small pieces of technology, kind of like a little GPS tracker that you can put on an animal, and it also uh, tracks the, the movement of that animal in particular, whether its head is down or up, if it's shifting directions. Um, and those are, those are um, getting more accurate as time goes on. So we're seeing some studies that are using accelerometers to measure foraging behaviors in animals. Um, you know, we're using these technologies more in the field as well and I hope that my work inspires more scientists to uh, take a different perspective, to do something a little risky, uh, to collect some data that nobody expected or to challenge those ideas. Like I said, oh cows are dumb or they're you know um, not aware, they're not capable of these decisions. Well is that the case? Let's go find out. so it, it sounds to me like across your academic career, you have been somebody who is not necessarily just going to accept things the way they are. And I, I think the other thing that I find really interesting, you've also often crossed cultures and worked with different people in different places within the US or within um, your work in Tanzania. And you've you, it sounds to me like you've picked up from that that you really want to listen to all these different perspectives because they are crucial in even posing the questions. So maybe the, the novel question that you came up with about following the cattle was partly by recognizing the kind of social, the community, the way that this m- method um, worked. Can, can I draw you a little bit more on why you think it's important to listen to these different voices and to bring them in, not just to explain, oh, and here we did some science, I'm going to tell you what it is, but actually to say, what should we be studying? Yes, exactly. Um, And it makes me think about what you mentioned earlier about scientists being an old guy with a beard, (laughs) you know, and how people are surprised by me and by what I do. And... A question that I brought to the table that people hadn't really been considering. So it honestly is these different voices and perspectives. Um, in these complicated issues, there will always be actors that have a different view. And if they are not brought into the discussion, if these people are left uninvited, then we actually will never know the full breadth of the issue and therefore we will never be able to create solutions that actually work out on the landscape. So for example, lions are the most scientifically studied wildcat species on the planet and yet their numbers continue to drop. They still have some of the highest rates of human conflict that we see. Uh, why is that? 
Perhaps it's the way that we frame these questions. Perhaps it's really the way that we are doing our science in such a limited perspective. Um, conservation in particular has really been criticized in the last several decades for taking such a narrow view of the issues. We've become so focused on the ecological details that we are not placing that within the broader social and relational, historical, you know, cultural, political context in which these study systems and these study species exist. Uh, and so if, if we don't incorporate those voices, all, all we know is our scientific facts, not ways to solve the problems that we are seeing in nature. Yes. I can't help but feel like those herders you talk about are scientists themselves because they must be making, uh, you know, just as we talked about the cattle and the complexity of the decisions or the, the thought process, the, the way that they were navigating their landscape, the herders are coming to it with a similar situation, right, where they're having to calculate a lot of things and figure out where and what they're doing. Um, Anyway, I, I, I don't want to go on that. I mean, that's my take on things, not what you're bringing to the table. But it sounds like you are very open to making sure that there is space for understanding that um, and recognizing the value of those people's experiences too. Absolutely. And even more than that, not just valuing them, but facilitating space for them at the table. You know, like supporting uh, programs that bring marginalized and minoritized mm -hmm. students into these natural resource fields mm -hmm. that are historically very white and very male dominated. Mm -hmm. So that when we talk to them, they are able to have that same kind of respect. Mm -hmm. um, they're not seen only as a, in my, you know, mm -hmm. my, lived experience not just seen as you know a young dumb girl right mm -hmm. maybe in their experience not just seen as like a, a rural person with no education they mm -hmm. are seen as a peer mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. they have access to the same information that we have they are able to make the same decisions about their career their family uh and i think that is vital mm -hmm. to being able to solve these problems mm -hmm. Do you feel that this is changing in academia? Is the, I mean, you've mentioned that there's been some criticism about in conservation for this. Is, is there a change happening? Yeah, I think that there is. Um, it's slow, unfortunately. Uh, we see that, you know, those with power have a hard time giving up power. Um, academia in general is really a hierarchical structure um, and so those at the top you know not to to generalize too much but there's a reason that that it is set up the way that it is um, and there are lots of hoops to jump through there's lots of rules and regulations and to make big changes takes a lot of time um, but we are chipping away at those things and you go into classrooms now and they don't look the way that they did 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and we want to keep that ball rolling in that direction. There are a lot of great academic institutions out there that are pushing the boundaries of the, the way that science was traditionally done, the way that a classroom was traditionally run, the way that 
field data was traditionally collected. Um, we've had such a history of being a difficult field to get into. Mm -hmm. Field work is almost a privilege, you know? It's difficult to be able to leave your home to go work somewhere else. Um, we traditionally, unfortunately, often don't pay our young people to get into conservation or natural resources. We expect them to volunteer. Mm -hmm. That is a huge barrier Absolutely. for anyone, unless you happen to be an extremely privileged person that doesn't need to rely on making your own money. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing new programs that are more supportive um, to entry level young people mm -hmm. that are paying them what they are worth mm -hmm. Uh, which for me is some of the most exciting things because we need to do that if we expect to have the next generation wanting a career in natural resources. Absolutely, yes. And it's a shame that this period over which, oh, well, you have to prove your willingness to do this by volunteering. Right. But not everybody's on the same footing to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. Say, and they, say, oh, just they, they would do it if they wanted to, but it's just not the case. Yeah. Okay, so, wow, you, you've brought so much to the Ecology Hour today. Um, this could be a whole series just speaking with you. Um, I'd love to distill some of these huge concepts we've thought about into this new position that you're here at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre doing. Um, I'm immediately seeing a few areas where I think, huh, that's interesting, there's kind of a match there. What do your past experiences in research... And now you've spent, I should be clear that you've only been here for just, what, 10 days or so? Like, very, I've only very been new. officially working for one week. <laughs> so to ask in great detail exactly what you're expecting, it's, you know, it's, it's at this stage hard to say. But do you, have you started to see from a week of being here ways that you um, can see that past experience that you've had um, and how it could be um, put, in, put into some action on this landscape here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what kind of links all of my broader research interests is this idea of complex systems. Um, so human carnivore conflict scenarios are a complex system. An ecosystem is a complex system. Um, it's interesting to me to think about how groups of people, teams of researchers are complex systems. We have many moving parts that interact with each other. They learn and grow over time. The system is constantly changing. That's what gets me excited as a scientist and has brought me to all these different types of research. And that's exactly what this system is here. It's a complex system. So we've got all kinds of research projects going on at one time. Um, the site here at Hopland itself is a complex system. We've got grazing going on, wild species on the landscape. We've, we talk a lot here about issues of like plant growth and nutrient cycling. Um, everything that we do is, is really related to finding these applied solutions that I get excited about. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that my experience Thinking critically about how all the small specific details make up a system and how it functions is really going to enable me to apply some of that here. I'm already seeing, um, you know, like the nodes in the system and where they're fitting in 
only ever, you know, only having been here for about a week. Um, I've been on several different calls about um, new projects that are coming up, new positions that we might be hiring for. So I'm thinking about how we're going to be collaborating together in the future, how, again, like I will be collaborating with the Sierra Foothills mm -hmm. Research and Extension Center, and then this broader, <laughs> very complex system that's the University of California, right? So we've got ANR, our Division of Ag and Natural Resources, um, and we've got all the different um, county extension offices and the 4-H programs and all these really exciting um, UC programs that we collaborate with. And I get jazzed up about it because it is so interdisciplinary. We work with these communities, um, the people out on the landscape. We also work with the academic scientists. We work with children and, um, you know, adult learners. And I'm just so excited to like dig into each little piece, find out how it fits or how it could fit better. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, bring, bring that, uh, evolve all those programs to be uh, um, as smoothly functioning as possible. That's what I think my job will be here. Wow. Um, you are not somebody who shies away from complexity. <laughs> <laughs> no. Which I think is a very human thing to do though, right? We want things to be simple. We want right. questions. I mean, if I think about COVID, we really wanted it to be an, a simple answer. Yeah. Can we just um, fix a medicine, a vaccine, and be done, and yes. it's finished, and we're all done, we'll get back to life as normal. And of course, we've been seen in this period that there, there is no such thing right. as it's, a simple you know, answer. It's no, right, exactly. Yeah. You can't mm -hmm. just say, wear a mask and things will go away, mm -hmm. right? Because disease ecology itself mm -hmm. is very complicated. Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. <laughs> no, but I do think it's 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 a wonderful aspect of your personality that for most of the population, I mean, I include myself in this, I really want to try and simplify things because it makes it a lot easier for yep. my brain to manage it, right? Yeah. But you're somebody who really wants to kind of bring in the complexity because mm -hmm. you want the best solution that there possibly could be, right. whatever the question is. So I, I think the biggest takeaway is that all of these issues will continue to be complicated um, and distilling it down doesn't work. We can understand it as best as best we can, but they will continue to evolve and to change. And so our understanding will never be complete. And we have to, as a society, as individuals, accept that fact that our knowledge is limited and just do the best we can. Mm -hmm. It's interesting, particularly thinking about questions regarding ecosystems and the environment because we really would like to solve things within a human lifespan, but we may be talking about a much longer much evolution of picture. ideas, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think, I don't know, it strikes me that's one of the things that we struggle with with climate change, right? Yeah, we absolutely. Just, um, it's it's a, a big thing for us to try and comprehend that far into the future too. So, um, Dr. Beck, thank you so much for talking me through all of this. I can't help but want to just... Um, I think we have a, a minute or two yeah. to, to finish things up. The work that you did in Tanzania and the fact that we do have at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre a small flock of sheep and we also have a lot of incredible trail cameras that are associated with research projects here that prove that we do also have some carnivores and omnivores on site that might be interested in sheep. Do you see, are there some areas there that you think there's interesting work to be done? And there has been some work on this done before, but I'm kind of intrigued at the things that are like things that are going off in your own brain. Yeah, absolutely. And this, 
this whole um, experience with Hopland will be new for me. I'm very used to working along landscapes without fences. And here we have all these really interesting and, and different pastures where the sheep are grazed, where they lamb. And it's so much new information for me to learn about this type of herding, like the herding practices that are common here in California. Um, and we do have big cats. Um, we do have some carnivores out on this landscape, which make me really excited. Um, and I'm curious about how, you know, how, again, how we can uh, ex explore these ecological questions in ways that pursue applied answers. So here at Hopland, we have these, these guardian dogs and they've been doing uh, here a really great job in the last several years of protecting flocks against predators like coyotes. Um, and so it's really similar to some of the things that we talked about earlier with some of these accelerometers or tracking technologies that we might be able to use here on our research sites to look at some of those fine scale behaviors that these individual animals are experiencing. So we can look at what our dogs are doing out on the landscape, what individual sheep are doing out on the landscape, how they make those decisions. Um, and then also we could potentially bring in what are those wild species doing? Maybe we could get some collars on coyotes, um, goodness, mountain lions. Yeah, so we could be able to look into not just you know, the little details of one specific aspect, but the little details of many aspects at the same time. So to bring in some of this understanding of rangeland ecology and livestock practices, um, predator-prey ecology, um, you know, even do domestic dog ecology, um, animal science, uh, the, like I said, there's kind of these like cultural, historical, social aspects um, of how we have been grazing these landscapes in the past, what we can learn from that is really exciting to me and see where we go from there. Yeah, I, I, I find it fascinating. This is for a whole other show, I think. But um, as humans, we bring to each of these species that we are talking about, um, you know, our own thoughts and feelings, right? And um, I'm imagining in the, with the lands in Tanzania, there was many, many feelings around the lands, right? And a lot of um, attitudes and feelings. And yes. then here we have on the, in the communities that we hear, lots of attitudes towards, say, coyotes. Mm -hmm. um, and of course they can differ, but that um, how we behave because of what we have as our relationship with these yes. species and our thoughts yep. and our feelings towards them that i find that really fascinating as well and it sounds like that's something that you've seen in these different areas a hundred percent these yeah. these issues are you know they're intense and they can be really polarizing um you know with 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 any large charismatic species you know one person a scientist might see a beautiful animal, ferocious and exciting, that needs to be saved and protected at all costs. And another person, um, a herder or a farmer, might see, um, you know, a threat to their entire livelihood. Um, in Tanzania, we see issues with um, livestock depredation or um, issues like even with elephants, different types of human wildlife conflict where potentially their crops get lost to grazing of zebras or trampled by elephants and things like that. And so where somebody might see a, a 
beautiful, amazing, mm-hmm. um, exotic species, they see, you know, the loss of their livelihood, the reason that they couldn't afford to send their kid to school that year. Um, it's a very, very complicated issue, yeah. and it, it's not different from yeah. here in California. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you see the most polarizing views of, of even species like coyotes, yeah. Um, yeah. and they're all valid. Yes, and we have to listen to them. Yes, um, otherwise we're you know we're just going to be throwing out um, solutions that, yeah. that don't work yeah. for everyone. Yeah, just what you were describing earlier. Um, thank you again for talking with me today. Um, I have to finish the interview by pointing out that in the one short week that you've been here, you've actually managed to see some species that I haven't seen here in six years and of course I'm not at all bitter about that um, but go on tell me about one of the days the one of the first days you went out on a visit on the it landscape was. here. <laughs> it was really wonderful. Um, I invite anybody listening to come and explore Hopland Research and Extension Center. I've only been here for a handful of days and I've been stunned and blown away by the amount of diversity that I've already seen. Um, And for me, I'm very excited personally because as Hannah mentioned, um, really my very first tour around the site, I saw a big bear and I just, you know, I get very inspired by those things. So I just see this bear as a, you know, a good omen for me as a carnivore researcher, like, welcome home, <laughs> let's get this done. Um, and I also see lots of deer around, so many different types of birds that are beautiful, so many different types of plants and trees. Anything that you like in nature, you will find it here at Hopland. Uh, so come and explore with me. Fantastic, and that's maybe a great opportunity to point out that we are going to start our um, guided and self-guided hikes again, which took a break through the summer, um, but we will be trying to offer them every other week, starting this weekend. Um, this weekend, unfortunately, is fully booked, but um, take a look on our website at hrec.ucanr.edu, and you'll find out the up-and-coming, on some cases, guided hikes, and maybe we can even convince Dr. Beck to help out with one of those. And you might see a bear if you go out with Dr. Beck, that's, and right. that's my plan. <laughs> Um, or on some occasions there'll be self-guided hikes as well with well clear, clearly marked routes for you. Thank you so much and um, we look forward to hearing from you again in the future Ecology Hours. Thank you for having me. Please remember that if you have any comments about the programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit us at our Facebook page at the Hopland Research and Extension Centre or find us on Twitter and Instagram at Hopland Rec. Or you could always send me an email, hbird h-b-i-r-d at u-c-a-n-r dot e-d-u. We'd love to hear from you and find out what you'd like to be hearing on the Ecology Hour into the future. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.